What's up, everyone? My name is Paul DeWeeland, and I welcome you back to another episode of the Year of Plenty podcast. So as you might know, I'm on a mission to create awareness around food and drink. One way I'm trying to achieve this goal is to share information about one food or beverage at a time. I think that makes the information a little bit more digestible. So in previous episodes, I've covered food-related topics such as the potent probiotic milk beverage called kefir and uh, one of my favorite kitchen herbs, basil. Check those out if that's something that might interest you. But for this episode, I thought it would be fun to talk a little bit about one of my favorite wild foods here in Wisconsin. Now, I've been wanting to do an episode about foraging or like a foraging-related topic for a while now, especially since, you know, I was out in nature quite a lot this year. And actually, one of my main goals for 2018 was to expand my knowledge about wild foods in particular. And I have to say, I'm, you know, happy with the progress I've been making. Uh, the first wild food I actively sought out this year were, uh, or was a mushroom called the morel mushroom. And uh, man, am I happy that I did because, you know, I'd heard so many stories about morels and their absolutely amazing flavor. And they truly do taste amazing. Now I actually know because, you know, I've been wanting to harvest them for years. But this time I actually, you know, decided to like pull the trigger and go out there and go after them. And turns out they're extremely fun to gather. I have to say, though, that there is something special about spotting one of these morels, you know, especially since it's kind of tricky. They only grow around certain trees and usually like dead trees. And they're also kind of hard to see in the leaf-covered forest floor. So this kind of makes hunting them a nice challenge and you also get out in nature when you do it. Another wild food I've been wanting to learn more about is wild asparagus. And now I only went, you know, out there to look for asparagus one or two times this year. So I didn't, you know, have the most plentiful harvest or chance to gather a lot of experience. But I did have the time to read up on it. So I guess I feel ready for the next season in 2019. Honestly, though... It's kind of annoyed me that I didn't get out there more. And actually, I really love asparagus. So it was one of the seasons I was really looking forward to. But anyways, after the asparagus season ended, I thought about, you know, another wild food to learn about. So not long after that, I had a conversation with my buddy Jake Poye. And he actually had like a nature guide of Wisconsin that had a bunch of wild plants in him. And I kind of looked through it. And we got talking, and then he, you know, I kind of told him that I'm looking for a new topic for this podcast. And then he said, you know, why not look into a wild fruit? Uh, he thought that would be a great topic for the podcast. And, you know, then after talking about it for a little bit and considering it, I thought this was a great idea because I learned about a wild mushroom this year, a wild um, plant like the asparagus or wild vegetable, why not, you know, learn about a wild fruit? And I have to admit, I've been trying to stay away from fruit right now, or at least very sugary fruits, because I'm on a low-carb diet and I'm just trying to avoid sugary things in general. So I know that I'm probably missing out on some things by not eating certain fruits, but, you know, eating a lot of fruit would definitely defeat the purpose of a low-carb diet, or at least the way I'm trying to do it right now. So, yeah, that's the reason why I'm kind of staying away from it. But there are some fruits that I like to snack on every now and then. And the one fruit I really love are berries. And especially because most berries are really low in sugar compared to other fruits. Now, I usually buy, you know, store-bought berries. 
and I really like blueberries and blackberries. But I thought to myself, wouldn't it be kind of fun to like actually find a wild berry and consume those instead of the store-bought ones? I mean, it doesn't get much more primal than that, right? So I started to research the different kinds of berries that can be found in the area around me. And let me tell you, there are a bunch. But since I like to learn about one thing at a time, I decided to choose one, one berry. And the one I went with is the very underappreciated mulberry. Yes, you heard me right. I said underappreciated. But before I get into why I think they're so underappreciated, let's talk about what the mulberry actually is because some of you, you know, might not know. Now, I'm sure many of you have heard of the mulberry, but for those of you that don't know, it's a berry that looks very similar to a blackberry. Even though many berries grow in a bush, the mulberry actually grows on a tree. And depending on the species, they can actually get quite large. And I've read accounts of some trees being as tall as 80 feet, which is freaking huge. But again, this greatly depends on many different factors. It's also good to know that there are several types of mulberry trees out there. You know, there's not just one mulberry tree. Yet, I dare to say that there are two types that you will most likely encounter here in the U.S. One of them is the Morus rubra, which means red mulberry. And the other one is Morus alba, which is the white mulberry. Actually, the red mulberry is native to North America, while the white mulberry was introduced from other parts of the world. So as I said, the native tree is the red mulberry, and even though it's native, the red mulberry is probably less common. Its natural range is more on kind of the eastern side of the U.S., whereas the white mulberry seems to be kind of everywhere. Actually, it's listed as an invasive species in several states of the U.S. And from what I have found online, the white mulberry has been reported in almost every state here. And I will have to, you know, I will have a link for both trees in the show notes that kind of highlight their exact distribution. And you can take a closer look if you're trying to see if there are any around you, for example. All right, so earlier I used the word underappreciated to describe the mulberry tree. Now, why do I say that the mulberry tree is underappreciated? Well, many people seem to have hate for mulberry trees. And, you know, this seems to be for a very silly reason. And what's even worse is that they probably don't even know that they carry delicious edible berries, which is, like, awesome. The reason mulberry trees get so much hate is because they're extremely juicy. And, you know, this is also why they're notoriously known for staining people's driveways, porches, cars, clothes, and whatever gets in contact with the red juice. And I can see how some people, you know, get upset about this, but some just take it too far. I even read a story online of a lady who caught her neighbor trying to poison her mulberry trees only because the berries stained her driveway. That's going a little too far in my opinion. But it also makes me wonder, is it really the mulberry's fault? I definitely don't think stains are a reason for hating these trees. More so, you know, the stains are a result of planting mulberry trees in the wrong locations. I really don't understand the people that decide to grow a mulberry tree and then choose to like a spot right next to their house or driveway. All that leads to are red stains in really unfortunate spots, like your car or on your driveway. So if you want your own tree, make sure you put it in the right spot, you know. You don't want to put it in a spot that will make you resent it in a couple years down the road. And this way, you know, instead of worrying about stains and stuff like that, you can be a proud mulberry tree owner 
Because honestly, I don't think there are many plants out there that produce delicious, healthy berries in such abundance that you can actually go out and gather. For those of you that own a tree and dislike it, I would like you to keep an open mind about it. You know, hopefully I can help you appreciate this awesome tree a little more as I kind of talk a little bit more about it now. So back to the topic at hand, though. Let's talk about a little, you know, about the actual berries. Because they are edible and taste freaking amazing. The mulberries are about half an inch long and their color will range from white to red to black as they kind of ripen. And I think this is true for all mulberry trees. At least that's, you know, it's true for the white and the red, which you will encounter most likely out in the wild or in like a farm or whatever in your backyard. Realize though that the name of the trees don't have anything to do with the actual color of the mulberries. You know, so white and red mulberries will still have the same color of mulberries. All you really have to remember is that the ripe mulberries will be the black ones. And in a way, they kind of look like blackberries, as I said earlier. But, you know, they're much sweeter, and you also don't have to worry about a bunch of thorns when picking them, which is kind of nice. What's also interesting is that mulberry trees are what you call heavy bearers, which actually means what it sounds like. They can probably drop more fruit than you can eat. So that's a bonus. Now, if you're lucky, you already have one of those trees on your property. But if you don't, don't worry. They're actually pretty easy to find in the wild. So where do these trees grow? You know, what's their habitat like? Now, according to the USDA's plant profile, the native one, which is the red mulberry, is found in floodplains, river valleys, and most hillsides. They also like the shades of other trees, so, you know, they prefer shady spots with moist soil. The white mulberry, on the other hand, is much more resistant and, you know, tolerant to different locations, I would say. The USDA mentions that it thrives in a wide variety of soils. However, they go on to say that, you know, it kind of prefers warm, moist, well-drained, loamy soil and a sunny position. And I had no idea what loamy soil is, so I looked it up. The dictionary says that loam is a fertile soil of clay and sand, so that's what, you know, white mulberries like the most. But anyways, the white mulberry can thrive in uh, cold temperatures, it's drought-resistant, and even salt-tolerant. Yeah, this makes the white mulberry very adaptable. Hence, you know, why it has become an invasive plant in many regions here in the U.S., And honestly, I have found the trees all over the place here in Wisconsin. Almost every time I walk the trails, I'll pass at least one. So the best time to look for trees is during the summer months. At this time of the year, they carry a lot of berries. And that's, you know, that way you can easily find the trees and save the locations for it, like a future harvest. Because it definitely gets a little harder to spot them without berries. This brings me to the next point. When is the best time to actually harvest the berries? Well, from what I've found online, it really depends on where you live in the U.S. I've seen everything from May until August, and this year I did most of the harvest at the beginning of July, and there were plenty of ripe berries. So when you pick mulberries, you will see that, you know, not all berries are ripe at the same time. From what I have experienced, you can find a tree full of ripe berries and then find another one down the road, that barely has any ripe berries at all. So honestly, I recommend to just go out in the woods or walk on trails as much as you can. Um, You know, carefully observe the trees you find. If you find a tree with ripe berries, just pick them. 
And if you see most of the trees with white or green berries on them, just wait a couple more days or weeks. They'll get ripe eventually. And that's kind of the fun part, in my opinion. You know, this will give you another reason to actually go out in nature and observe the world around you a little closer. And listen to this. You do want to pick the ripe berries only. I have read that unripe berries can actually be toxic to humans in large quantities. And they even said that they, you know, people can hallucinate from them. So that's definitely a reason to wait until they're ripe too. Now, there are several different, you know, ways to harvest these mulberries. Like I said earlier, when you are out there, you want to pick the berries when they're black and ripe. But you will know that they're ripe because they actually come off the tree quite easily. Oh, and also a quick warning. You want to wear clothes that you don't really care about when picking the berries. Again, the berries berries stain. And, you know, when you are picking them, I can almost guarantee that the tree will drop a couple berries on you. Personally, I like to grab a bowl and a bucket, you know, when I go harvest. I will just hold the large bowl in one of my hands and pick the berries with the other, you know, moving around the tree. You can also take your container and kind of set it on the ground if it's big enough in front of you. And, you know, then just drop the berries as you go. Also, when me and my buddies went out, we would systematically kind of work our way around the tree. So, you know, first pick the berries from the branches that you can easily reach. And once you feel like you got most of them, what you can do is grab higher branches and kind of pull them down toward you. And then you can just, you know, easily pick berries from the higher branches as well. Another way that people pick mulberries is with a tarp. And uh, what you can do is bring a tarp, you know, kind of lay it under one side of the tree then grab the branches and shake them violently. And this way, all the ripe mulberries will, you know, kind of drop onto the tarp and then you can easily scoop them into a bucket. And this is probably the fastest way, but, you know, definitely use this method on a calm day when, you know, there's not a lot of wind that's kind of going around. Otherwise, your tarp might, you know, go bye-bye and you will lose all those precious berries you collected, which would, you know, really suck. Trust me, it's happened before. And that's why I just, you know, enjoy picking the berries by hand. That's the way humans have done it for thousands of years. And you will notice that, you know, it's actually an extremely fun activity. Actually, to me, it's like a meditation. You can easily find yourself getting sucked into the task at hand. And, you know, it's a very stressless job. To me, at least, I, you know, I really enjoy doing it, uh, especially on a sunny day with light, with a, like a light gust of wind. And, you know, it's, it was quite addicting, to be honest. But one more thing, all trees are a little different, so the berries will vary in taste and sweetness. So depending on what you're using them for, it's always smart to taste the berries before, you know, go pick a bunch. So let's talk about why you should consider consuming mulberries in the first place. First of all, obviously, if you pick them in the wild, they're absolutely free. You already know that buying berries from the grocery store, you know, can get very expensive. Especially, you know, the organic ones, and you never know how fresh they are if you get them from a store. And actually, I don't think you can even get them from a store. They don't stay good or, like, fresh for very long after you pick them, which, you know, kind of gives them a short shelf life. But I guess you might be able to find some at maybe your local farmer's market. You know, otherwise, you just go out there and get your own. That's the beauty of this of the public lands we have here in the U.S., and that's another reason to keep public lands in public hands, just saying. Actually, you know, not to go off on a tangent here, but one of the main reasons I decided to move back to the U.S. from Germany 
is because of the access to public lands. I don't think many people appreciate this amazing thing here in the U.S. These are lands, you know, that are literally, they belong to all citizens. You can hunt there, you can fish there, you can forage there, and, you know, you can hike and you can camp. What more do you really want? It's an amazing thing, and we have to make sure that it stays that way because there are several lawmakers that every now and then they try to take the right away from us, you know. They try to sell off public lands. But all right, enough of that. Let's uh, get back to mulberries. I was going to tell you more reasons for actually gathering these awesome berries. So as you know, I love to kind of learn about the health benefits of foods and beverages, and mulberries are indeed healthy for you. First of all, the fruits, leaves, and bark have been used in traditional medicines around the world for a long time. According to an article on Dr. Mercola's website, the Institute for Traditional Medicine says, quote, Traditionally, mulberry fruit has been used as a medical agent to nourish the yin and blood, benefit the kidney, and treat weakness, fatigue, anemia, and premature graying of hair. It is also utilized to treat urinary incontinence, tinnitus, dizziness, and constipation in the elderly and the anemic, end quote. So, mulberries were, you know, definitely used by traditional medicines, especially in China. And actually, the Chinese are, you know, still using them in their traditional medicine today. Supposedly, though, the Romans used them too. In the Roman Empire, uh, they were used to treat diseases of the mouth, throat, and the lung. And since mulberries are also native to North America, Native Americans used them as well. But let's look at some findings, you know, that scientists have found for us about mulberries. First of all, they have many essential minerals and vitamins. I found a great article on Healthline.com by Ada Bjarna Dottir. I hope I said that right. She lays out the health benefits of, you know, of mulberries quite well and kind of backs it up with scientific studies. And I'll link the article in the show notes for you guys to check out. So her article claims that mulberries are rich in iron and vitamin C and also have a, you know, a good amount of vitamin E, vitamin K1, and potassium. And they're also pretty low in calories. So this alone, you know, makes them a great addition to any diet, in my opinion, unless you're, like, allergic to berries and stuff like that. But that's not all. Mulberries are loaded with antioxidants, and we need to consume foods rich in antioxidants, mostly because, you know, of all the oxidative stress our cells undergo from toxins in our environment. So one of the main families of antioxidants found in mulberries are called anthocyanins. And these are very potent antioxidants. And you know, studies suggest that they might be able to inhibit some of the oxidation of LDL cholesterol, or, you know, the kind of the bad cholesterol in your body. And furthermore, you know, this family of antioxidants have also been shown to have beneficial effects against heart disease. All right, another cool thing. Most of you that are interested in nutrition know that antioxidants are very important in our diet. And, you know, in the health world, you will often hear people discuss something called ORAC values. Now, ORAC stands for Oxygen Radical Absorbance Capacity. I know, long word, but in short, it is a lab test that kind of measures how high the antioxidant capacity of a food is. So, you know, this is an interesting number to consider when comparing the antioxidative powers of different foods. But, you know, to get to the point, 
I bring up the auric values because mulberries seem to have a pretty high number. And I found a chart in a book from 2007 called Issues in New Crops and Uses by uh, Jules Janik and um, Anna Wipicki. And you know, this book presents a chart which compares the auric values of a bunch of different berries. And actually, the mulberry uh, has a score of 6,001. No, sorry, let me get that right. 6,130, which, you know, is the highest out of all the berries that were tested. For example, the blueberries and raspberries tested had auric values between uh, 3,000 and 4,000. So, you know, the mulberry is clearly the winner here. Now, I have read that wild berries often have a higher antioxidant capacity in the first place. And, you know, I don't know if the berries that were tested were wild ones. But either way, this alone makes, you know, the mulberry a pretty powerful food. So, you know, one thing I do want to address is that many people always, you know, try to buy superfoods at certain grocery stores that cost a bunch of money because, you know, they claim that they have crazy antioxidant effects or health effects. Well, like the goji berry, for example, you know, which, you know, is really gaining popularity in the West here. And, you know, I don't know if they realize that, you know, there are local superfoods all around us, like the mulberry, for example. And, you know, sometimes you don't have to get things from really far away to get something very healthy. All right, uh, let's see what else did I want to talk about here. Oh, yeah. So there is more than just powerful antioxidants in mulberries. Mulberries also have alkaloids that kickstart macrophages. And macrophages are important white blood cells that are part of your immune system. So eating mulberries could potentially help support your immune system. Another interesting chemical found in mulberries and other dark berries in general is a a flavonoid that's called resveratrol. You've probably already heard of this one. There is a lot of hype around this compound. And actually, you know, I read an article in the Harvard Health Letter by uh, Heidi Goldman. And this article is skeptical about the health benefits of resveratrol because, you know, most studies have been conducted on animals and microbes only. But either way, from these non-human studies, we know that resveratrol might be able to uh, help prevent things like skin cancer and heart-related problems in mice and, you know, even protect nerves and the brain in different lab animals. But remember, these were not studies conducted on humans. Yet, you know, we can still keep an open mind as, you know, more human studies are done in the future. The reason I bring up resveratrol in the first place is that the wine industry often boasts about its miraculous health benefits. Since it is found in grapes, it can, you know, also be found in their wine. What's interesting, though, is that I found a study that compared the resveratrol content in a bunch of different berries, including mulberries and grapes. And according to this study, it turns out that mulberries had a resveratrol content that was way higher than that of any other berries tested. So, you know, if you're currently drinking grape wine, hoping for the possible health effects of resveratrol, uh, I say, you know, get your hands on some mulberry wine as well. All right, another common health claim regarding mulberries is that they can help reduce blood sugar levels. So, from what I've read, there is a compound called 1-deoxyneurodromycin or DNJ. And you know, that can this DNJ can be extracted from different parts of the mulberry tree, especially the uh, leaves and the bark. 
So as far as I learned, the berries also contain DNJ, but, you know, they supposedly aren't the greatest source of it. Now in some studies, the DNJ has shown to reduce fasting blood glucose levels, which, you know, is really cool, but again, these were mostly animal studies, I just want to say that straight up. Still, there have been a couple studies on humans suggesting the same. However, the human studies I read about usually, you know, used mulberry leaf extract, not the actual mulberry leaf. And, you know, this is because the leaves have a very high content of DNJ. Which is also kind of good to know because you can actually make a tea out of the mulberry leaves. There are actual several companies that sell mulberry leaf tea. And it's very commonly consumed in many Asian countries. There is, you know, plenty of information online on how to make your own tea. Just as a warning though, I have read that the leaves need to be cooked before consumption. Supposedly, you know, when they're freshly picked, uh, they kind of release a white sap that can be toxic. I couldn't really find any scientific studies or articles in science journals that describe the toxicity of mulberry leaves. But there were several discussions online about it. So if you know more about this, please send me an email or leave a comment. I'm really eager to learn more about this possible toxicity of the mulberry leaf. Anyways, I brought up the mulberry leaf tea because the leaves contain this DNJ, which has shown to reduce blood glucose levels. And I guess this could be a real benefit to people who want to lower their blood sugar levels. Like, you know, after eating a high carbohydrate meal, for example. But... You know, that can also be a problem for some, especially those with diabetes. If you have diabetes and you're drinking mulberry leaf tea, I would watch for signs of very low blood sugar. Even better, if you are diabetic, I would consult with a licensed healthcare provider before, you know, drinking mulberry leaf tea in general. Alright, so now you know about the possible blood sugar controlling effects of mulberries, or at least the leaves. Let's see what else we can learn. I know there's a lot of science I'm talking about here, but you know, I think it's always interesting and helpful to learn what's happening in the world of science with uh, some of these foods. So another cool study I found to get closer look at the flavonoid found in mulberries called rutin. And you know, this flavonoid is found in several fruits and vegetables, not just mulberries. But according to an article on Dr. McCullough's website, rutin really helps your body absorb vitamin C and also produce collagen. It actually seems to do more than just that, though. In uh, the study I found, which, of course, I'll link in the show notes for you guys, rutin was extracted from the mulberries and added to water. Now, this water was given to two groups of mice. The first group of mice was genetically obese. The other group was also obese. However, they were obese to, to the diet that they were given. Now, the outcome was that in both groups of mice, the rutin activated brown fat production. So what's brown fat? Well, the body has several different kinds of fat cells, but two big ones are white fat and brown fat. For example, white fat is, you know, what your body produces from excess calories, and it really is what, you know, what we know as or we think of as stored body fat. Uh, So pretty much it's what will give you those love handles. But brown fat, on the other hand, is easily burned by the body and, you know, used for heat production. So this pretty much means that it's beneficial to have more brown fat if you want to shed weight fast because it's so easily burned. So in both groups of these mice, rutin was found to activate this brown fat. And this led to increased energy expenditures, better glucose homeostasis, which again means that glucose levels are more balanced, and you know also reduced body fat in general. 
To me, this means that, you know, the root and fountain mulberries might be beneficial for people trying to shed some weight fast. All right, so these are just a few of the health claims attributed to mulberries that you will commonly find online. But I encourage you guys to do some of your own research if this is something that really interests you and you want to, you know, learn a little bit more about. But remember, the healthy compounds in mulberries are just a small piece of the puzzle when it comes to personal health. However, why not add mulberries to your list of healthy foods to eat? Especially since you actually have to go out and engage in some walking or hiking if you want to eat them. Unless you have your own tree in your backyard, of course. Then all you have to do is, you know, take a few steps to get this delicious treat. I really envy those people, I gotta say it. But I guess one day I'll have my own tree as well. Alright, next up, I want to talk a little mulberry history. And you know, if you have already listened to some of my other episodes, you know that I'm a big fan of food history. Mainly because it allows me, you know, to understand the food or drink better. And I find myself appreciating the foods more if I know about their history for some reason. So, people have been aware of the mulberry tree for a very long time, and there are actually several mentions of mulberry trees in the Bible and other ancient texts. And actually, some of you might have heard about the love story of Pyramus and Thisbe. And this story is part of the Metamorphoses, which is a narrative poem by the Roman poet Ovid. It's a kind of a long story, but, you know, I'll give you a short synopsis since it involves the mulberry tree, and I thought it would be kind of interesting to hear about. So, according to this story... Pyramus and Thisbe were lovers from Babylonia, but their love was actually a secret because their families absolutely hated each other. I don't know about you guys, but you know, this already sounds like Romeo and Juliet to me here. Anyways, after a secret conversation between the two through a crack in the wall that, you know, separated their homes, Pyramus and Thisbe, driven by mad love, decided to run off and get married, without telling anyone, of course. Their plan was to meet under the mulberry tree before sneaking off. So Thisbe was the first to make it to this mulberry tree. But when she came closer, she saw a lioness hanging out under the tree. As she slowly made her way toward the tree to take a closer look, Thisbe saw that the lioness's mouth and jaw were full of blood. In fear, she screamed and ran off. However, in doing so, Thisbe dropped her shawl. Then not long after, Pyramus excitedly approached the mulberry tree to meet his love. But when he got there he saw something that chilled him to the bones. The bloodthirsty lioness was ripping apart the shawl that Thisbe had dropped. To Pyramus it was clear that the lion had just eaten his Thisbe, his, you know, his love. And the thought of this was so painful to him that he took his sword and stabbed himself to death, right then and there under the mulberry tree. But then shortly after, Thisbe, hoping that the lioness would be gone by now, returned to meet her Pyramus, but instead all she found was his lifeless body. And when she realized what had happened, Thisbe took the sword and killed herself as well. And this is actually why the mulberry trees are dark red, because the formerly white berries were now stained dark red with the blood of the two lovers. So, yeah, that's the very short version of this ancient story. And, you know, it's a little disturbing, and it doesn't have a happy ending, but it's kind of cool to see, you know, how they mentioned the mulberry tree in, in such an old tale. However, there's a much more recent history surrounding the mulberry tree here in the U.S. So some regions in the U.S. have a very high population of mulberry trees. And this is in part due to the silk industry. I bet you didn't know that, but mulberry trees are essential to the silk industry. 
This is because the silkworms absolutely love to eat mulberry leaves. Actually, the leaves are the main source of food for the silkworms. And back in China, you know, white mulberry trees were part of the secret to making silk, which allowed their industry to prosper for hundreds of years. And actually, the great philosopher Confucius claims that he knew the origin of the silk industry, according to a legend mentioned by him. So he said, quote, The wife of the Yellow Emperor, Huangdi, was having tea under a mulberry tree when a silkworm cocoon fell into her cup. As she watched, a strand of fiber unspun from the cocoon and she realized that the strong filament could be used to make cloth. Thus, an industry was born. She taught her people how to raise silkworms and later invented the loom. End quote. Who knows, you know, maybe there is some truth behind this legend. But what it pretty much means to me is that, he, like mulberry trees, have been used by humans at least as long as the silk industry has been around. And, you know, that's pretty interesting because silk is a very expensive material, highly sought after by people who are willing to pay high prices. And it is this potential for, like, profitability that has led to several silk industries around the world. Even here in the U.S., motivated businessmen have actually tried to establish a dominant silk industry several times. In the early 1600s, there were laws in Virginia that required every male resident to plant at least four trees. But it wasn't until the 1830s that the silk craze took over. The newfound potential for a silk industry created a phenomenon known as mulberry mania. And this mostly happened along the eastern states of the U.S., so in the years that followed, the hype for silk and mulberry trees kept growing and growing, and this led to a man named William Prince to import the white mulberry, or the Morris Alba, to the U.S. And you know, the white mulberry is a robust and fast-growing variety that actually originated in China. And this white mulberry was boasted to have, you know, larger leaves and more nutrition for the silkworms compared to other varieties. So the craze soon led to the demand exceeding the supply of wild mulberry trees here in the U.S., and actually, I found a cool mention of the mulberry tree from this time period in a book by an American named William Kenrick. And his book is called The New American Orchardist. And during the 1800s, it was actually a famous guide on growing fruit. In his book, Kenrick writes about the white mulberry tree. He writes, quote, A new variety, which is also called, by way of excellence, the Chinese mulberry, a tree of surpassing beauty, a new and most valuable variety for the nourishment of silkworms, a tree which is represented as possessing such decided superiority over all others that it will speedily be substituted for them all in every region of the globe. He then goes on to say, It originated in the elevated regions of China, a country famous for antiquity, for its silk, a parallel only to our own in all its various climates and diverse latitudes. It is to this tree that the disciples of Confucius acknowledge their indebtedness for the prosperity and solidity of their empire. End quote. Clearly, Kenrick was a fan of the white mulberry tree, and his book probably you know, contributed to the vision of an American silk industry around the 1830s. And actually, the hype around the white mulberry caused many tree nurseries to give up all other business. So all they did was grow and distribute white mulberry trees for a while. But you know, only about a decade later, in 1839, the silk bubble burst. And this was due to three factors. Disease, extremely cold winters, and you know, cheaper labor in foreign countries. So kind of, you know, what farmers experience today as well. This was when the dream for an American silk industry died. And the reason I bring this up is because we can still see the result of this mulberry mania today. 
Since, you know, so many white mulberry trees were planted during this time period, we still have a bunch of them in the wild. And as a result, with time, of course, the white mulberry has become so invasive that it replaced a huge part of the native red mulberry population. And, you know, it's kind of unfortunate for the native variety here in the U.S., but, you know, I guess it's good for those people that really enjoy eating the white mulberry or mulberries in general because now they're everywhere. And actually many homes and farms have, you know, now become aware of this awesome tree and have made it part of their fruit gardens. All right, on that note, let's talk about how to grow your own tree. You know, if that's an option for you, of course. And for those of you who think a mulberry tree is a valuable addition to your backyard, I have good news. Supposedly, they are extremely easy to grow. I've never done it, but from what I've read and seen, all you really need is like a cutting. So what I would do is, you know, go out and find a healthy looking mulberry tree. Be sure to taste the berries since, you know, not all taste the same. They all have a similar flavor and are really good, but, you know, some trees just produce tastier berries than others. So if you found a suitable tree, all you really want to do is cut off a branch. And you will then, you know, use this branch to grow a new tree. This is called propagation and it works with uh, many plants actually. And, you know, there are many different propagation and rooting techniques. But essentially it all comes down to using a cutting from one tree to grow a new tree. So it's pretty much like cloning the plant. But uh, yeah, I will definitely link a video in the show notes by the Weekend Gardener YouTube channel. And yeah, you can check that out if you know want a detailed step-by-step guide on how to do this. Okay, so next I want to share a little bit of my own experience with the mulberry tree. So another reason I actually decided to do an episode on mulberries in the first place, you know, is because this year I decided to start making my own fruit wine. Since, you know, this was my first time making it, I wasn't aware that pretty much any fruit can be made into wine. Heck, you can even like make wine out of dandelions, which really blew my mind. But I wanted to use fruit and, you know, a fruit that was native to Wisconsin. And, you know, it should also be abundant and one that I could find in the wild. Long story short, mulberries seem to be the perfect fit. So now that I had my, you know, fruit of choice, I needed to figure out how to make the actual wine in the first place. And since I'm like a complete noob when it comes to winemaking, you know, the first thing I did was like go to a brew store near my house. I uh, think that, you know, it's always good to find people who already have the knowledge and skills that you're seeking especially if you're a person like me who likes to ask tons of questions. So off to the brew store I went and, you know, let me tell you, it wasn't a short visit. I spent about two hours there and I had the guy behind the corner explain how to make wine at home and, you know, I took some serious notes, so I learned a good amount from that visit. But I still had several other questions, which, you know, I tried to answer with the help of the internet. Which eventually led me to realize that there are many different recipes and ways that you can actually follow to make wine. It's actually one of those things that requires a little trial and error, I realized. Especially since, you know, so many different things will or factors will affect the final product. But I did find a recipe that, you know, only used mulberries. No grape juice concentrate and no extra raisins either or anything like that. Because that's what a lot of people seem to add to their mulberry mash or wine mash to, you know, give their wine more body and flavor once it's done. But, you know, my goal was to make a pure mulberry wine. So next I had to buy all the essentials, carboys, fermentation buckets, the wine yeast, and so on. There's a couple things you need, but in total all the equipment cost me about 70 bucks, so not too bad. 
Then I had to find mulberries, of course, uh, and the recipe I chose called for six pounds of mulberries. And at this point, that seemed a lot, but it turned out that six pounds are gathered pretty fast. Most trees we found were loaded with fruit, like literally had a ton of fruit. So I guess we uh, picked them at, you know, the right time of the year. And luckily, my friend Caleb Casper is also big into like making food and drink at home. And he has actually made many different fruit wines in the past. So he was the person I went to and he was very helpful during the you know whole winemaking process. And Caleb was actually the one that showed me a really good spot, you know, to pick some mulberries. Since I had no idea how much how many you know berries I would get from a tree, I figured I'd need a spot that has a ton. But yeah, so what we pretty much did was we went out on a beautiful summer day, and my buddy Tristan and I made our way to Caleb's house in you know in order to do some serious mulberry picking. And let me tell you, it was an amazing experience. Honestly, it was unlike anything I had done before. What we did was you know walk along the edge of the woods and stop whenever we saw a mulberry tree that you know was carrying a decent amount of fruit and uh, we then got under the tree and started picking the berries off the branches one by one now some of you might say dang i'm not really looking forward to like picking mulberries for hours but uh you know i i do it and i do admit it was tedious but at the same time it was very special because out there i realized that you know in a way this was an ancient task a task that people have engaged in for like a really long time, probably since the beginning of human existence, you know, have they gathered berries and other foods. So there really is something about being in nature and picking your own food and, you know, slowly watching your bucket fill up. It was actually very meditative and, you know, very rewarding. But the best part was that, you know, while we were actually picking the mulberries, we would take short breaks to sit, sip on like uh, Caleb's mulberry wine that he had made the year before. And it tasted so freaking good, which, you know, motivated me even more to pick a bunch of mulberries and start making my own wine. So on that first day, we had about three gallons of mulberries in our bucket, which, you know, was more than I expected. And this also made me realize that I could easily pick more than the six pounds, which was what my recipe called for. So the next day, Tristan and I decided to hit the mulberry trees in his backyard. And, you know, he had already told me that they were pretty packed. And he was right. He had one perfect mulberry tree, and we literally picked another three gallons of berries that second day, which gave us a total of six gallons of berries to mess around with and make wine with. Now, I could explain the whole wine-making procedure in, like, nitty-gritty detail, but, you know, that could probably be a whole nother episode by its own. However, if my wine turns out good, I will make like a step-by-step guide on how to make mulberry wine because it was kind of hard to figure out online. But I won't know, you know, until next summer because I'm going to let the wine age for at least one year before trying it. Supposedly, the longer the better. Otherwise, you might, you know, not get the right flavors or get serious off flavors. But I can give you a short overview of what I did so you kind of get a feeling of how wine is made so wine is you know fermented fruit and there are two fermentation stages the primary and secondary fermentation so once you have your fruit you need to mash it up so that the juices really get released and then you add your sugar your yeast nutrient your pectic enzyme and you know eventually the yeast that does all the magic and all this stuff is necessary for the primary fermentation to take place my primary fermentation took about eight days And once, you know, that was completed, I strained out the fruit leftovers. Next, I filled the leftover red liquid into glass carboys, 
which are those big glass jugs that you might have seen at like a wine store before. It's just a big jar that they actually store the wine in. From there on, uh, it's all about, you know, storing the carboy at the right temperature and letting it age. So it really isn't that hard. However, it does get difficult if you're trying to achieve a certain quality of wine. But, you know, for my first try, I'm not worried about that at all. I just hope to get actual wine at the end because along the way, several things can go wrong that actually lower the quality of your wine. And, for example, if, let's say, a wild yeast gets into your liquid during primary fermentation, your wine might turn into vinegar. And, you know, that's not the worst thing in the world, but I'd much rather have, like, some mulberry wine to share with family and friends than vinegar. So that was kind of a short overview of my personal experience with uh, mulberries this year, besides, you know, the occasional harvest during a hike. But wine or vinegar aren't the only things mulberries are good for. There are many other ways you can use them in the kitchen. Actually, the Native Americans used the fruits in things like beverages, cakes, breads, and whatnot, and they even used dried mulberries and mixed them with an animal fat to make pemmican. And pemmican is like a high-energy food that was, you know, important to the Native American cuisine. So, yeah, what the Native Americans did, you can do too. Why not, you know, go out there and get a couple of mulberries and use them in your smoothies in the morning? You could also use them in desserts or bread. So pretty much they can be treated like any other berry when it comes to food preparation. For example, I used to be a sucker for jams back in the day and mulberries would probably make an excellent jam. Now the only thing about mulberries is that they don't stay fresh very long, as I said earlier. And uh, I'm sure, you know, some farmer's markets will have them, but, you know, if you buy them, just know that you need to use them and eat them pretty fast. But there's some ways you can actually preserve them. And one way is to dry the mulberries, just like the uh, Native Americans did. Or what you can do is freeze them. And that's probably the best thing to do. It will also make it really easy for you to use them in smoothies or desserts or whenever you need them quickly. All right, there you have it. We have come to the end of this episode. Just as a recap, we talked about why the mulberry is so underappreciated, why you should consider gathering them, and you know how to use them as an ingredient in food preparation. The main goal of the episode was to get you guys excited about the local food that you know you can easily gather yourself in the wild. Now, anytime you forage though, and you're planning on going out there, I hope next year to gather some mulberries, um, you know I do want you to do it with care. Because there are many foods we can get from nature, but we don't want to overdo it. It's easy for us to come through and, you know, harvest every berry from a tree. But, you know, think about all the other animals that benefit from these trees as well. Many birds and mammals live uh, off the mulberries. So if you are gathering your own, I just want you to leave, you know, some for them too. It's always a big part about foraging or like an ethical thing with foraging. You never want to take more than you need. All right, so I would love to hear from you guys though. You know, maybe one of you will even try to make your own wine next season. If you do, please let me know. Maybe, you know, we can even exchange some uh, tips and tricks. Just leave a comment or send me an email or whatnot. And like I said, I'm still learning every time as well. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the podcast on the Apple Podcast app or Google Podcasts. If you uh, don't know how to get there, just go to my website, which is www.theyearofplenty.com. Actually, I recently made a subscribe page, which makes it really easy for anyone to subscribe uh, to the show on whichever medium they prefer. So check that out, please. 
Also, if you learned something new, please share the podcast with your family and friends. You know, that way we can get more people excited about real food and drink. And also, please leave a five-star review in the podcast apps. You know, this way curious foodies like you and I can find a podcast much more easily. I hope that through these episodes, people begin to see how cool the world of food and drink is. And, you know, that they get motivated to start cooking their own food instead of eating a bunch of that processed stuff all the time. Okay, that's all for now. I'm grateful for all of you who listen, and I really mean that, and for all of you that really support the show. So big thank you for me. See you soon. Bye-bye.